This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hi, I'm Marie Hendry. I'm a bookseller at Barnes & Noble, and I'm so excited to be talking to the queen of cliffhangers, Juno Dawson, author of The Shadow Cabinet, the second book in the Her Majesty's Royal Coven trilogy. Juno, hi, we meet again. Hello. <laughs> I'm going to try to have the least spoilery conversation with you as possible. Do you accept the challenge? I accept. I'm ready. No spoilers. Can you give everyone a quick elevator pitch of the HMRC trilogy and what the heck is going on in the Shadow Cabinet? I can. So Her Majesty's Royal Coven, it's like an urban fantasy, for want of a better phrase, about a group of modern women who live in the United Kingdom and they just so happen to work for a government agency of very powerful witches. And for as long as we've all been alive, there has been this government department, a government-sanctioned coven, working to keep us all safe from what they call supernormal threat, which is demons and the like, and evil warlocks as well. The first book, full of drama, lots of drama, some very exciting and very spoilery things happened. Mm-hmm. So the second, book, the second book picks up straight after the first book. We have um, our transgender witch, Thea, who is still coming to terms with having undergone a magical transformation. Um, and Leonie is tasked with tracking down Dabney Hale, who is a rebel warlock who believes in magical supremacy. So she goes off on a jaunt around Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, Without giving anything away, the character of Kira is back. I think it's going to be impossible to talk about the Shadow Cabinet without talking about Kira. Yeah, I feel like we're going to have to just uh, spoil a little bit of Her Majesty's Royal Coven because... I think it's okay. Kira's back. Kira's back. She's in a coma in book one, but Kira who is Neve's wayward twin sister. She used to be a part of Dabney Hale's rebellion. Mm-hmm. She is back and we are heading towards the coronation, the coronation of High Priestess. And we finally meet the Shadow Cabinet, who are the humans who are one of a very limited number of people who know about the existence of witches. And that includes the Prime Minister as well. That's who the Shadow Cabinet is. I remember talking to you last year and I was like, how dare you with that cliffhanger? So I'm so glad that you picked it back up. Like mm-hmm. there, there's no guessing what happened right after that. You picked it up right where it needed to. So thank you. What kinds of powers do these witches have? In my world, there are four official kinds of witch. So you have uh, mind readers called sentients. There are healers. There are elementals who can control the natural elements around them. and there is a, oh, oracles who can obviously mm-hmm. see the see the past and future, see the great tapestry of time, and then there is a fifth illegal kind of witch, which are the necromancers, which we do not talk about, um, and then some some very blessed witches are adepts like Neve, Hera, and Thea. They possess more than one skill set. And which of the witches do you most relate to? Ooh, well, I mean, I've said I've said before that they're all me, and it, mm-hmm. it took me a, it took me a little bit of time to realize that that was kind of how it was. I'm, I'm wearing my Spice Girl top at the moment, and I think that's kind of why the Spice Girls appealed so much to sort of '90s girls because yeah. we we are we all contain multitudes, 
You know, mm-hmm. there are days where I feel decidedly scary. There are days when I just want to be babied. There are days when I, you know, want to be quirky and outrageous and be ginger spice. <laughs> and I think that's kind of what I've done with the coven as well, where, you know, you've got this incredible sort of the maternalness of Elle. Yeah. Um, you've got the the rebellion of Leone, who, who is always kicking against the stable door. Um, and then you've kind of got the the kindness and compassion of need and of course the complete devil my care attitude that Kira has and that's why book two was so much fun to finally be able to give Kira a voice and yes she's completely unhinged mm-hmm. but sometimes so am I and you know Kira does some outrageous things in this novel she's kind of me if I didn't have that filter you yeah know, there, there have been times when I've really wanted to tell people what I think to their faces but I don't because like like news, I want to be liked, but there is a definite thread of Kira within me. And so it's really nice to now finally have all five members of that girl group in play. So obviously Kira was on the bench for all of book one. It's so interesting because in book one, we don't actually get to know her. We only get mm-hmm. to hear about her from everyone. And she sounds so terrible, horrible, scary, but you made her really complex rounded person where I was like oh I see what she has gone through and how she ended up this way what inspired her I know you said you've got parts of her was it Mm. were you just taking from like the parts of you to make a person like that or I'm so glad you said that because I mean I I did really really worry that and and a lot has been said about unlikable female characters but it's risk Mm-hmm. And I think a, a lot of readers really engage with those kinds of very sort of morally grey female characters. But some readers, not naming names, but my husband, <laughs> when he's read some of my YA fiction, he's like, well, I just didn't like her. And I'm like, well, I'm not a complex female character, man. Exactly. But I, exactly. <laughs> I wanted, you know, Dabney Hale as a villain is quite irredeemable. In the first book, you know, Hel- Helena, the character of Helena, you know, was was quite villainous with some of the things she did and she made some really bad choices Mm -hmm. and so I wanted the same for Kira you know she does some really unpleasant things but I think she has a motive for everything she does and what was really lovely is that from the beginning of the book we realized that because of Kira's injuries in book one she can't remember vast chunks of her adult life yeah her child her childhood is more or less intact but her adult life is a complete patchwork mess kind of and so we go on that journey with her of her trying to piece together her own timeline and she's kind of making this jigsaw of her own life and we start to realize that almost from childhood Kira was almost doomed you know there was a yeah there was a prophecy about her as a child and her life becomes this kind of awful story of self-fulfilling prophecy kind of um and I love her. I mean, I, I know I'm going to go on the record right now at Barnes & Noble and say she's not a good woman. She does some awful things. But she can I, be. I love her. She can be good. Yeah, she can. I loved her too. I really loved her. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Because how much of that is like expectations that were put on her that she was like, well, I guess I'm just bad. So I'm going mm-hmm. to be bad. And how much of it is like, you know, seeing the way the world treated her twin sister, who is angelic, and feeling mm-hmm. that jealousy. Like, if she was treated the way that Neve was, would she have been different? 
Exactly. And because they're identical twins, it gives mm-hmm. us a lovely, and, you know, twins in fantasy fiction, you could do a whole kind of PhD on that. But mm-hmm. I think Kira, even more than most struggles, because there's this other woman in the world who looks exactly like her. Yeah. Is, she's treated so differently. And it feels like, because a lot of characters in this book believe that Kira is Neve for much of the book. They mm-hmm. treat her the way that Neve has always been treated. And, yeah. um, and it's really interesting to see that kind of, it's, I guess it's a big question about nature versus nurture. And that's kind of what Kira has to work out, which is, is there something fundamentally evil about Kira Kelly? Or was she just treated very badly by both the men and the women in her life have treated her quite badly. Yeah. And even like, you know, when her college memories come back, when she starts getting into, mm-hmm. you know, her bad years with her boyfriend and um, with Dabney and there's demons. I don't feel like that's too spoilery because there's a lot of demons yeah, throughout. So many demons. It's almost like you could read it as like, yeah, those are evil aspects of her or it can be interpreted as like, she is a young person who feels unsure about her place in the world. And unfortunately, a lot of young people who lack that self-confidence get into experimenting with drugs and alcohol and hers were demons and bad mm-hmm. boys. Yeah, and, and definitely not the first fantasy writer to use actual demons as an allegory for sort of allegorical demons. I mean, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there's a whole series where monsters were monsters, kind of. And what I love about Kira is that she thinks she's very in control. Mm -hmm. And and I love how her her own narrative about herself is in kind of stark contrast to what you as the reader can see, which is actually she's been very exploited. And I think in lots of ways she's quite vulnerable. And, you know, she would never admit that. But I think hopefully the reader will see that she talks a very good game, but actually she is a very vulnerable young woman. And I think there's something to say, too, like about the other girls that grew up with her that see those redeeming qualities in her. Like Leonie loves her. Elle loved her, too. It seemed like when they were young, she was a little bit scared of her, but she still loved her. So she wasn't totally bad and evil like she thought. It's just, I've really felt for her in the book. I'm really, really glad. Because I was going to say, it was it was a risk. I mean, there was a reason we didn't start with Kara in book yeah. one. But that, that would have been a bold move. But I think, obviously, there was plenty of shocks in book one. But it was always, right from the very beginning of this trilogy, it was always going to be the case that Neve was very much the spotlight in book one. And then Kira would always come center stage in book two. That was always the plan. And, and then, yeah, I'm just, I'm really pleased. But as a trilogy writing, mm-hmm. I was, this is my first trilogy. I was very, very mindful of the middle book syndrome. And I think any, any author is very familiar that it can be the muddy middle kind of. And the reviews have been so good. I'm so relieved, you know, as soon as the first few reviews came in. I think it was, it was from America, actually. It was that book list. I was like, <gasps> So it's called Her Majesty's Royal Coven. Can you talk about the connection with Anne Boleyn and why it's not going to turn into His Majesty's Royal Coven now? (laughs) The the Queen, rest her soul, did die (laughs) towards the very end of it. This book was was finished. This book was so done. 
in Australia where people, literally the day she died, people were like on my social media being like, will you change it to his Majesty's <laughs> Royal And we did, so there's a midway when, when the characters finally meet the Prime Minister, who's Guy Milner, when they meet Guy Milner at Whitehall, and he does point out, shouldn't it be his Majesty's Royal Coven now? Because going forward, mm-hmm. we, will have, we will have kings for a good long while now. And um, I said, initially I was going to change it. But then I was like, no, because these, these witches have served historically two queens. Mm-hmm. In that Anne Boleyn, she was the founder. She was the first one to start the coven in, in the early 16th century and then later it was formally started under Queen Victoria Mm -hmm. so I was like these women have always served a queen rather than a king and I quite like that symbolically HMRC is you know we we are and have always been Her Majesty's Royal Coven since since 1869 they have been Her Majesty's Royal Coven yeah I loved that and I was like I'm so glad that it's not turning into His Majesty's Royal Coven. It just wouldn't feel right if they were mm, yeah. serving the king. And I think book two as well. I think so it was, it was, you know, and I like I would like to again to put this on the record. I was aware that there is there are issues around England's colonial past, which kind of doesn't sit, doesn't sit very well with the idea of being a witch. You know, the, these women in Kira says in this book, she says, we are weapons of an ancient goddess. You know, it all comes back to Gaia. It all comes back to this feminine divine from which the women draw their strength. So why are they serving this draconian, archaic institution? You might tell that I'm not the biggest royalist in the country. Yeah. <laughs> so you might you might say, why are they doing that? And actually, in the first book, Neve has quit HMRC. Leone has quit HMRC. Elle has never worked for HMRC. So there's only Helena in the first book who even works for HMRC. And I think in book two, you get an even stronger sense that all is not well with this organization. It's a bit like Sex in the City. The fifth character is HMRC. And the running through the whole trilogy, there is a narrative and a conversation to be had about structures and institutions. Obviously, Leone is fiercely against the institution and has started her own rival coven. And Kira repeatedly questions, why, why would we sign up for this? Yeah, it's so interesting the conversation that they can have around institutional issues and hierarchies and how being part of it can be beneficial in a way, but mostly it's antithetical to what they really are as witches. And that, again, now I'm writing book three at the moment, so really don't want to do spoilers for book three, but that's that's a conversation that will run throughout the whole trilogy which is how in the modern world can women work within patriarchal structures? And if book one is about conflict between women, book two is about conflict between men and women, and then book three will explore the role of women within a patriarchy. So that's that, And that was always the plan. And it's, it feels quite nice that obviously I think I started HMRC in like 2018 you know it's still still the case that 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 three-part structure is still more or less accurate oh that's great that's a really great flow um 
So what's your process? Like, does it differ when you're writing fiction versus nonfiction? Yeah, I mean, it's been a while, it's been a while now since I've written nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, because whereas before I used to juggle fiction and nonfiction, now I'm mostly juggling fiction and screenwriting. So if I'm if I'm not working on a novel, I'm working on a script. So the, uh, right now, never say never, but there isn't any room to do more nonfiction, which is obviously interesting because at the moment in America, there is so much conversation about this book is gay and what's the tea. Mm-hmm. But those books, like I wrote this book is gay 10 years ago. Yeah. But in, ter- in terms of the process now, it feels like my career has entered like a, a slightly new phase where, you know, I was quite happily pottering along in total anonymity for the best yeah. part of 10 years. But, you know, Her Majesty's Royal Coven has gone through the roof. I mean, especially in the UK, it was number one. And and that brings lots of interest. And obviously, there's, we've optioned mm-hmm. for television as well. So it's kind of, there's lots going on. And so it means now, ironically, I just have less time to write full stop. I'm in full promotion mode at the moment. But when I come back, I'm going to be touring the US in June. When I get back. Yeah. You're going to do a story time here. I am. I'm very excited. You need to chill. I read it to myself. Yeah. Isn't it cute? It's so cute. So when I get back in July, I'm going like emails off, fun off, and I'm going to not come out of my little house until HMRC3 is done. Oh, that's exciting. It is. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's kind of that, that's still, that is still my favorite bit of the job, you know, mm-hmm. when it's just when I have nothing in my diary and I've just like, I have a whole day to write. Yeah. That's the dream. Oh, it's the dream. And I must admit, obviously COVID was a living, breathing nightmare, but I arrived in 2020 and, and it was really beautiful to just spend that whole year kind of just really immersed in the world of these women. It's so wonderful that you were able to create during that time. I was just so like stalled on everything that I feel like I wasted that year. Oh home no, no. <laughs> we, we can't we can't think of it like that because now it's, it's only now and I look back that I realize how bad my mental health was during that year you know we are social creatures we are not meant to stay home and not see our friends and especially when you're writing a book about female friendship as well it was it was not the best environment to be writing about female friendship do you do a lot of group texts Oh, so many. Well, this, I mean, there's a lot of group texts in the shadow cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> well, there really, there really is. And that was kind of, again, born out of the pandemic, which is, you know, Zoom and WhatsApp. Was it's such modern life friendship on. is group texts all day long, every day. Right. And I, I love how group texts have their own politics as well. Like you've got, you've got the group chat and then you've got the side group chat. But then there is the usually in any group chat, there's like the one person where you're going to be like, can you believe what she's just said? That's definitely. Wild. OK, so you mentioned this book is gay. Do you want to talk about it a little bit? Let's. Yes. Let's. Okay. Let's. So last year, this book is gay became the ninth most banned book in the country. Wild. I read it. And like, though I'm not the intended audience, I think it's an incredible resource for young people. Can you talk a little bit about how it came about? Yeah, so we are, we now we're going to wind back to 2012, a long time ago. I had been a teacher for a long time, and one of my many roles when I was a teacher was I was a consultant for what in this country we call PSHE, Personal Social Health Education, and a thread of that is sex and relationships education. 
And I was really good at it. And I was sent all around, all around the area to kind of best advise schools on how to deliver really sort of top-notch PSHE. And when my publisher got wind of this, they were like, we need you to write something. You know, would you write something for LGBTQ teenagers? Initially, I was like, no, because I, at that point, I hadn't even started my own transition. And so I didn't feel I could, for example, I didn't feel I could speak on behalf of bisexual people or lesbians because I had never done that. I'd never lived that life. And so it felt kind of hypocritical. But then I mulled on it a bit and I sort of said, well, look, what if I sort of did some surveying and did some interviews with lots of members of the community? Would would that work? And they were like, sure. And I wanted it to have a voice and I wanted it to have a sense of humour. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd read Kathleen Moran's How to Be a Woman, which was huge over here that year. Yeah, so I remember I thought, that. But what about something a bit like that? That kind of feels a bit like a big sister vibe, kind of. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how it came about. And the UK publisher were really cool. Source books in the US bought it immediately. And it came out in the US in 2015 with very little fanfare. <laughs> you know, it didn't, it didn't really make the first. David Levithan, the amazing author, gave us a foreword for the American version. But it certainly didn't cause any controversy. It didn't ruffle any feathers whatsoever until about I think it was about 2017 when it when it first started making headlines. And you will notice by 2017, we were into Trump's America. Yeah, it totally tracks with where we were, unfortunately. Yeah. The first area where it was challenged was in Walsilla, Alaska, which was Sarah Palin's district. Yep. Kind of. So the dominoes just started to fall. But still, to be honest, there was the odd, maybe once or twice a year, there was a little bit of a fuss around it, but nothing on the scale that we've seen in the last 18 months to two years. It's a strange loop. Like when when um, Pen America or the American Libraries Association identifies which books are being challenged, Mm-hmm. And they get more challenged because yep. obviously the, the the people who have made a real hobby out of challenging books, it's almost like they've been handed a shopping list. But I just I just think that's that's certainly not on the ALA. I mm-hmm. mean, how sad how sad is it that there are people out there who have made who have made a pastime out of tracking down books and, and trying to ban them? I think I think it's bonkers, kind of the last sort of 12 months have been quite challenging and it's frustrating you know to be so willfully taken out of context if they even just gave it a chance and read it and tried to Mm. understand like this is something that is going to monumentally help young people understand themselves and or the world around them is not inappropriate (laughs) No, and I think if you if you take a little snippet out of context and tweet it, you know, anything, it can look, it looks wild. I mean, for one thing, the first thing they say is that this is a children's book. And this book is gay is absolutely not the children's book. I mean, we never said it was a children's book. It was published by a YA publisher. It's, you know, so we, we were never claiming that. But most of the point, a lot of these accounts have realized you can't argue with crazy. They tweet things saying it's from this book is gay and it's not from this book is gay. So they're, they're just literally screen grabbing any old stuff and saying, oh my gosh, this is pornographic. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's not from my book. <laughs> That's from somebody else's book, kind of. But by that point, the internet doesn't care. The internet's already shared it a thousand times, kind of. You know, so it's it's kind of, it doesn't matter if they then later say, oh, sorry, it's not from Juno Dawson's book. 
joke. It's a political tactic that's being fought in both the UK and the US, mm-hmm. where both of our countries have very real systemic problems with yeah. poverty, fuel prices. Europe is at war, you know, mm-hmm. and our our I think certainly in the UK, it feels like our politicians are failing. The only people they have to blame are themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's much, much easier to talk about a book, to talk about, you know, trans healthcare, you know, than it is to talk about the real problems that are affecting our country. And, and I think that the difference in the US is that now that the right are out of power, mm-hmm. there's been a very organized attempt to say, well, we can't do anything centrally, we can't do anything in government, but we can cause a lot of noise on a very local level. So, you know, we can make noise in a school, we can make noise in a library, we can pick it a drag queen story hour. It's not about children. And I've said this in Rolling Stone magazine, it's not about children. Because if it was about children, they would be talking about banning guns. Yeah. You know, they would be talking about vaccines. You know, there are so many ways that we can protect children that, that would do a much more efficient job than boycotting a drag queen reading a picture book. Yeah. And that's one of the things I was saying last year during the formula shortage was like, if they really cared about the babies, they would be trying to find a way to get food for the babies. It's all been so unfortunately politicized. I have a friend who works in a Florida school district who has to attend these like banned books meetings. And it takes so much out of her as a person and as a parent. And since I became a parent, we're having a lot of conversations about the approaches that we want to take. I feel like this book is gay and what's the tea? They're not for me, like the intended audience, but I love that you have taken these really big topics that have become unfortunately politicized and you've making them digestible. And I think what's more important is that you write with such kindness and love and acceptance like your overlying message is like this is normal you're okay everything's okay I really loved that and what's the tea you had a section for advice for parents and caregivers my son is still very young but I'm gonna have these books on my shelf I want to have them as a resource so that as he grows up and he is naturally curious about the world or perhaps himself I can turn to these books and say like these are the ways that we can talk about these things, or these are the oh, ways that yeah. you can help understand yourself. Did you ever think that that would be a way people would read these books? Oh, I really heard that. That was that was in my so first and foremost, I wrote it for myself when I was 15. And I think mm-hmm. that's true of my YA fiction. It's true of the Manchester's Royal Coven, because I couldn't quite find a book like it. So I thought, well, yeah. I it. But I know from being a queer person in the world that a book or a film is so much easier to talk about than yourself. It is so much easier. And I remember with my mom talking about LGBTQ characters on reality TV, on Big Brother or The X Factor. And they were kind of like a conduit for us to have those really big, difficult conversations. And so I really hope that what's the tea in this book is gay. And what and you need to chill, actually, as mm-hmm. well. You need to chill is, I, I mean, so lovely, really nice for little, little kids. Yeah, and, and I know from when I used, I used to teach year one, I did, I just, that wasn't my favourite, I preferred the older kids, but I did a couple of years, <laughs> I did a couple of years on the ground in year one. Using picture books to talk about life is yeah. so, it's the best way to do it. And whether it's 
you know, and it's it, nothing is sadder than when I see books like Antango Makes Three being mm-hmm. challenged because it's just a lovely penguin. Just let the penguin have an egg, you guys. And, and that was what I wanted to do with You Need to Chill as well, because I know from being a teacher and from being a queer person that it's so much easier to kind of have that kind of safe space in the middle. I think with all three of those books, it's just about hoping that they sort of find their audience just mm-hmm. kind of, because I always felt that if this book is going, what's the tea, could find that 15-year-old mm-hmm. queer or confused kid that it might really make a difference, that they might yeah. just feel a bit less alone. I know a lot of people will say, well, we have the internet now. So, you know, the, we, we don't have a pressing need for nonfiction the way we once did. But I think the internet's really confusing. Oh, yeah. And, and scary and mean. <laughs> and I, you know, I really wanted it. I mean, this is the kind of, all these people calling my books pornographic. I wrote these books to counter pornography. I wanted young people to get high quality sex education. They didn't have to learn it from pornography, which is not sex education. You know, I, I, I don't want young people to get their sex education from the internet. I want them to get it from from speaking to trusted adults or from, from a book like This Book is Gay. So it's kind of it's about hoping hoping it finds people. But obviously This Book is Gay has been out for so long now yeah. that I know that it really has. And what's really, really lovely, and this has started happening in the last couple of years, it's fully grown adults now <sighs> come up to me at events or even somebody came up to me on the Tube in London a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, This Book is Gay really helped me to understand who I am. That's so nice. It is. And it blew my mind because this woman looked about 25. You know, she wasn't that young. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. this book is getting old. I hope he doesn't mind me saying, but lovely Joe Locke, who is, he plays Charlie in Heartstopper. Mm-hmm. He, came, he came to talk to me at an award ceremony last year. He was like, oh my God, this book is gay, changed my life. And I was kind of like, this is amazing. Like, oh my gosh. Like, because you don't, you just don't know. Once, once the book is out, it takes, it takes on a life of its own. And, and most, as much as we would like to think you do, most, most readers do not write you an email. They do not yeah. tweet you. They do not tag you on Instagram. Most readers just read your book and you never, you never know. And so it's, it's only really at moments like that woman on the tube a couple of weeks ago where you're kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, some, some ran, random words that I wrote in 2013 sort of changed her life. And that's mad. You know, that is, if, if I sit with that, I start to feel a bit weird because it feels like, you know, like Galadriel with the ring. It's yeah, yeah. Like, I want to give the ring back. It's like, I don't, I don't know if I trust myself with that power. Yeah, you're like, who, me? Kidding. I did that to you? I wow. could be Kate Blanchett. I've just compared myself to Kate Blanchett. <laughs> oh, she's got ideas. It's an apt, yeah. Thanks. Well, it's, it's so nice too because you've got the picture book. You've got these books for, you know, older kids, young adults, and then, 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 you've entered into the adult space with Her Majesty's Royal Coven and you've got this great representation because like this is something I talked about with someone a couple of weeks ago like kids are never too young to see that representation i would almost prefer that my son go to a school that is inclusive and has these picture books full of different kinds of people different shapes of families different ways that everyone works because that's what he's going to be confronted with Mm -hmm. as he enters the world. So You Need to Chill is a lovely book that has the great You Need to Chill message while showing there are different kinds of people and that's okay. Why don't we just calm down about it? 
you know what? It's not kids I worry about. I it's not the kids. Yeah, because I think I think kids are going to be fine when when I sort of when I'm when I'm, I'm I'm in schools far far less than I was when I was writing the young adult fiction. But kids, don't get me wrong, teenagers can still be really vicious. Yeah, but it's the adults. Uh, but it's not really about that. They're just, mm-hmm. they're just they're just horrible to each other. They understand that a school community is a diverse community. I think it's more about sort of adults. And yeah. I think it can even for me, you know, I've, I've just turned 40. It's quite scary sometimes to feel that society has moved on without you. Even I get that with Gen Z. And, you know, I'm sort of really, I'm, I, I really worry that I'm getting things wrong and I'm saying the wrong thing and that I'm like a dinosaur, even though I'm, even though I'm only like, I'm only a millennial. But um, that's why, you know, I wrote Her Majesty's Royal Coven with a cast. I think, you know, Neve is 34 and then Helen is 39. So, they mm-hmm. are those kind of upper, upper millennial women. And, you know, that's something that they're dealing with as well. That kind of slight generational gap of they're not boomers. Mm-hmm. They're, not gen, they're not Gen Z either. And they kind of feel a bit torn between the two kind of. Right. It's about sort of trying to make, make sense of that. And I think that's why I think there is a real power in writing a fantasy novel about witches. Mm-hmm. But also, like you wouldn't know from the cover, you wouldn't know from anything it says on the back. But it has trans characters. The, one, one of the leads is mixed race and she's a lesbian, you know, and it just has a very diverse cast, but it's not necessarily sitting on a pride display in a bookshop. And I think that I think that's quite important as well, because I, I just think the dream for me is that, you know, when you sit down to watch a TV show or when you go see a Marvel film or when mm-hmm. you, you know, when you go to a cinema, that you just you're just seeing society for what it really is, which is you know, you might not like us, but trans people exist. You You're know? there. Yeah. We, we are we we are part of the world. We are not unicorns. Exactly. We are we are not sort of goblins. We are just sort of like real people who are in your world doing the best we can, trying to take care of ourselves and our loved ones. And yeah. it's just it's not a big deal. I mean, the end goal for me as an LGBTQ person is just to become really mid, just like really boring. Just kind of like just no, nobody would bat an eyelid kind of. So like your author's note at the end of this book is gay says in challenging times, it's more important than ever that we come together as a community and support one another. It all starts with kindness, compassion, and you. So I want to bring that back to Her Majesty's Royal Coven and the shadow cabinet, because I feel like these witches have seen some real danger from patriarchal, misogynist, anti-witch groups. And even with HMRC's issues that you've touched on a little bit before, it does feel like for the most part, their underlying message is community and support. Can you speak to how you created that atmosphere? You know, particularly for Neve and Elle and Leonie, I felt like Mm. it came through most for them. I really do think that the best weapon of the patriarchy is to seed division amongst women, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm very... Sort of vocal about I think that women don't need to like each other I think it'd be very naive to say that all women should be holding hands and skipping down the mm-hmm. road it's not yeah. a coke commercial in the 70s I do not want to teach the world to sing but <laughs> I do I do think there should be because I, I think there is a natural sort of coalition between all women under the mm-hmm. patriarchy and I think I think feminism has to be intersectional. I think we all yeah. have to recognize that different kinds of women face different kinds of oppression. Yeah. And it's yes. about recognizing that, acknowledging that, 
But I do think we all have a common enemy. And that's kind of, so that's the allegory from Her Majesty's Royal Coven, which is they, every single witch in mm-hmm. that book has, has a common threat. And it's this rising threat of Satanus, the, the threefold demon. Kind of. Yeah. And that is, that is my metaphor for the patriarchy. But the problem is when, when these women fall out, as they do in both book one and book two, all they do is they advance the aims of Satanus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what I was hoping to get across, because when these women work together, even though they might not like each other, they disagree mm-hmm. with each other on a mm-hmm. whole bunch of things. Actually, that's that's the real progress that needs to be made. And I think the word, yeah. that, the word that I like is coalition. It doesn't it doesn't need to be friendship. It just needs to be coalition. Yeah, that's a great point. And the coalition, when they do come together, they're really unstoppable. And they've offered such a nice place to land for Theo too. Yes. And yeah. I, I although, love seeing although, how she, not at again, first, no, no spoilers. Yes, spoilers, not at spoilers. first, but spoilers. now it seems like she's doing so much better. I love to see the way that she has grown mm-hmm. in this book. Things happen. And again, always in the Being plans. a teenager is hard. It really is. It's, it's <laughs> tough. And, and it's, it's really nice because obviously there are people that are like, oh, have you quit writing YA? And I don't know. I mean, never say never, but it was nice to sort of have the teenage characters of Polly, Milo and Theo are still there. Yeah. They, they come higher in the mix for the second book. It's lovely that Theo has a voice now. In, mm-hmm. in book one, she is, she is mute. Theo has finally blossomed into the girl she was always meant to be. And she has a voice now. But what's really interesting is because the media is very obsessed, on the kind of the makeup a portion of a trans person's life. You see it with any famous trans person that everybody's very fixated on the before and after. Yeah. But then what happens next? You know, it's very rarely talked about. And so Theo is about to find out that there is a whole life waiting for her after what happened to her in book one. And I think there's the assumption as well that the transition is going to be the hardest thing you ever do. But then you're like, oh God, but now I have to date and I have to finish school and I have to get a job and I have to be a functioning member of society. And so Theo is kind of figuring out that actually her life didn't end in book one. Her life is beginning. And so she now is dealing with a whole bunch of sort of teenage dilemmas with the first rush of young love. But then also, let's not forget, she is the centre of a very apocalyptic prophecy and that hasn't gone anywhere either. So Heavy weight on that poor girl's shoulders. <laughs> but she's very pretty and she has lovely hair. So at least there's that. She's got that. She's handling it really well. She's got a really good friend in Holly, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Holly and Thea. I do, too. They're so oh. sweet together. Yeah, spin-off. There you go. There's your YA. Yeah, <laughs> YA spin-off. Watch this place. Yeah. I love talking to you, Juno. Um, Thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation. The Shadow Cabinet comes out in June. You Need to Chill comes out in June. I have them both here. Thank you, Juno. This is my favorite day. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I will come back anytime. Thanks. I'm Kat Sarfis, forever bookseller at Barnes & Noble. Today, we are joined by the brilliant Emma Turge. Emma's debut novel, Ink, Blood, Sister Scribe, is one book I can't stop talking about. 
a spellbinding novel about estranged sisters, magical books, familiar royalty and betrayal and the pursuit of power. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real delight. Yeah. So I would say I uh, am pretty biased here um, when it comes to books about books, just in general. Um, But so in this case, we have a book about magical books, um, which I would say was pretty much going straight to the top of my TBR pile. Uh, And that's really just scratching the surface. So there's Enchanted Mirrors, Nefarious Family Empire, there's mystery, there's drama. You certainly pack a lot of adventure and intrigue into this story. So of course, I have to start off with what inspired you to do so. There's a long answer and a short answer. The long answer involves like many months of sort of writing my way into this book without having any idea what it was going to be about. It was always, however, about sisters. It started out, I really wanted to play with fairy tale tropes. So I'm glad you picked up on a few of them, like the Enchanted Mirrors, you know, um, family loyalty is big in fairy tales. So there were seven sisters at first, but they got... Uh, whittled down to two. Turns out it's quite (laughs) difficult to manage seven sisters. So I did know that I wanted to write a book about sisters in part because my own younger sister, I'm very close to her. And she has been begging me for it since our childhoods to write a book about magic sisters. And I decided, okay, maybe it's time for me to finally do that. So really it's started. Yeah. Started for her. Oh, I love that. And that kind of brings me to those sibling narratives. If you have a a sibling, which I do, um, and I also have a sister, so it kind of, you know, uh, it it feels very cozy. But whatever the relationship is, sort of whether it's strained or, you know, relaxed, a sibling is sort of like that one person in the world that truly understands where you've come from. And I love sibling relationships. I especially love the sibling relationships between Joanna and Esther. I think there's so many moments between them that are so real for anyone that has a sibling, maybe not the magical bits, but (laughs) accurately sort of portraying the, the nuances in sibling relationships is really satisfying, at least for me to read. I know for a lot of people to read. So you said you drew inspiration from, from your sister. Um, Was there anything else? I know you said you started with seven sisters. So how (laughs) I'm sure that you were you were looking at sort of sibling narratives um, to sort of to sort of build uh, into the story. Yeah, I so I have one sister, um, a blood sister, let's say. (laughs) And then I have three stepsisters, two on my mom's side and one on my dad's side. So I'm sort of wealthy in sisters, for which I'm very, very grateful. I really love my stepsisters. So I was thinking also about the types of family relationships that are not quite as easily defined as just that one-to-one blood siblinghood. You know, Joanna and Esther are half-sisters. And while I consider them full siblings, there is that little bit of contention between them. Or not contention, but, you know, tension. And I think that no matter how close siblings are in age or whether or not they're fully related. The interesting thing is, yes, it's somebody who fully understands your childhood in a way that nobody else will, but they've also lived a completely different childhood right next to you in the same house with the same parents. And that is endlessly fascinating to me. You know, my sister and I often talk about the different ways that we experienced our childhood, even though we were literally sharing a room for most of it. So I was thinking a lot about that also, those like little differences that make people grow up differently and look back differently at the same experiences. 
Yeah. I mean, you do hear, you know, people, if they're the firstborn or the first, you know, the, the first and then or, you know, the middle child or the youngest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think everyone's experiences are different, but there, there is, I think there is something to that, you know, where, where in order, in, I would say birthing order, <laughs> where you fall, <laughs> I'm the youngest. And, um, uh-huh. and there's certain things where I, I wouldn't like, you know, people say about youngest and that I wouldn't agree with and other things where I'm like, you know, in terms of experiences and like, yeah, and how, yeah, in terms of like the parallels of your childhood versus like, you know, my older mm-hmm. sibling. Um, and it's interesting. And then now I have children and I'm watching like their dynamics mm. kind of play out. And I can't help but be like sympathetic to the young, you know, like, <laughs> to the baby and be like, you know, and it's funny because my husband's who who is a firstborn and he's like more like kind of being like, well, you know, and like, pl- you know, it's sort of like we're sort of playing these stories out now in another capacity. So yeah, endless, I think <laughs> siblings in general, endless, endless. They are super fascinating. Yes, my older just, sister heart was beating in sympathy for your youngest child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just, you know, it's like one of those where I'm like, you know, you try to have overall sympathy, but you can't, but when you have that sort of lived experience, mm-hmm. like you can't help but have possibly have certain biases, but just the fa- the, the family dynamics in general. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting to, to hear you say, yes, how they're not technically full blood siblings, half siblings, but, you know, just seeing how close they were. And then, you know, like you said, even as you grow up, as they get older, um, how relationships start to change, you start to become more aware of things and your differences. And mm-hmm. so that's just very, very um, interesting. And I want to get back to sort of the family and and also the found family that um that we see here in the book but i want to talk about villains because i love Mm. talking about villains and you have created such a wonderful sort of like magic system and then you have this like fantastical world that you sort of built and i feel like you do all of these this like framework but you got to have good villains and i really loved how you played with your antagonists and i want to start with the library which is Mm. like an institution not a mm-hmm. person, but doesn't need to be a villain. Doesn't need to be um, necessarily a person. I think many of us look at libraries as sort of like this beacon of goodness and and knowledge and a place of of preservation. And this library holds some dark secrets, and obviously <laughs> like a lot of parallels to sort of um, you know that absolute power corrupts absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about that and how you sort of came to this idea of a library. Mm, um, I really like that you said villains don't necessarily have to be individuals. They can be institutions. And I was thinking of certain, in my mind, villainous institutions <laughs> when I was thinking about building the library. Mostly I was sort of thinking about the very wide general institution of colonialism mm-hmm. and how in the name of quote unquote preservation, you know, empire has taken over and taken as their own so much precious knowledge from other places. And, you know, it's not um, a coincidence that the library is in London or in England, uh, because I do sort of associate that as like the seat of colonial power, Mm -hmm. as I understand it, being a U.S. citizen. And I was thinking about like the British Museum. There's been lots of conversation about repatriation of sacred objects to different places that British Museum has taken and I have a good friend who's Cypriot and we had a really interesting conversation where we thought we had found a an ancient Cypriot amphora at a thrift store in Virginia and we had like 
all this conversation, like she was calling the embassy, trying to repatriate this Cypriot amphora. It turned out to be a fake, oh, no. but, <laughs> but in a really interesting way, like it's a fake that is well known for being a really good fake. I was thinking about all those things, like the repatriation of objects and how institutions often under the guise of protection are actually enacting damage and being oppressive in general. So, you know, we kind of introduced in this this library and at first, you know, it, it is a little bit, when you first start to, you know, read about it, you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, they're just, you know, they're just collecting. And then you kind of go into where they've been, you know, acquiring and how they've literally just sort of washed away certain, you know, like, again, it starts off with, oh, there's all these like little collectors or all these, these mm-hmm. families that, you know, hold these books and protect these books. And then they're all sort of like bought up. And then mm-hmm. you kind of see this sort of like the monopoly and you kind of realize, okay, maybe we're not as, as, you know, our mission is not as, as worthy as we, you know, or what their, their mission uh, is what they're saying is it's maybe not as, as good as, as, as you think it is. So yeah, it was just really interesting to kind of, to, you know, how it starts and like, you know, your thoughts on, on, on it when you're first reading about it. And then, you know, how you sort of continue and sort of build that narrative around this, this institution, this empire. Um, but then of course there's also the players behind this sort of institution who mm-hmm. made it, who, you know, what it is. And so we'll say, we'll talk, we'll start with Richard, um, who, again, you kind of think of this like loving uncle and you do, and the way you write it, you kind of get wrapped up in this, that part of it, like that, mm-hmm. again, that one slice of, of, of what you're seeing. Um, and then you pull the rug out from under us and, <laughs> and then you're kind of like, how did I not see this all along? But, you know, then, you know, you, you follow along. But so Richard, again, thinking, you know, parallels of uh, like people who are in power, who, you know, maybe they came into it for the right reasons, or they say mm-hmm. they came into it for the right reasons, but really, you know, and then playing with sort of this inherited magic and bloodlines, it was really just really interesting. So where, where did you sort of pull that from? Hmm. Well, I think it was important important for me to convey a sense of paternalism mm-hmm. through Richard, because I do think that there is a kind of condescending paternalism that comes with saying, we can protect this better than you can. We can keep these things safe better than you can. Um, and by you, I mean, you know, uh, countries that have had things taken from them by colonialism and empire. And that's sort of like the very broad. <laughs> yeah description but on like a character to character level i did want there to be a feeling that nicholas feels really safe with richard mm-hmm. and feels well kept by richard nicholas himself is a resource and so i wanted him to be sort of like a living feeling sentient resource mm-hmm. to this paternalistic person who really does want to keep him safe you know richard has good reasons for wanting to keep him very safe. And I think one of them is perhaps affection. (laughs) You know, we could, we could argue about that, (laughs) but I don't think that there's a total absence of that kind of paternalistic affection that comes when you're trying to keep something safe. If you're trying to keep something safe, it's because you think it's precious and you're going to treat it a certain way. So I was thinking about that as I was writing their relationship. And then, so to, just to round out that that nice trifecta, mm-hmm. Maram, and I hope I'm saying that character's name uh, correctly. And she, I really struggled with um, because mm-hmm. it was this, you know, she obviously has this ambition and is that bad? 
you know, she's obviously when you first are introduced to this character, she's in one way and, and you know, or she you you think she is as a, one character, as you will all have to read the book once you get, <laughs> once you get further on, you um, sort of uncover this other life that she sort of had and that, you know, the ambition she's had and that kind of what that's what that, you know, the path that that led her down. And I guess, you know, thinking of, you know, Richard is in more of that, that patriarchal patriarch, you know, like in that kind of center and then her. And I didn't want to, I, I mean, I'm throwing her in this sort of villain character, you know, category because and maybe in some parts, you know, and so mm-hmm. in some ways she is. But I didn't want to. I think I definitely like Mm -hmm. learning more about her and especially learning about her lives. You know, you have wonderful, strong female characters here. And I'm thinking about Cecily and then Maram and and just almost the sort of gag order that the two of them sort of, you know, get into to sort of protect their family. And and it did sort of, you know, highlight a lot of these similar (laughs) issues that I think women go through in their lives. And, And, you know, that sort of delicate balance of ambition and protecting, you know, feeling that maternal instinct to sort of protect your family and, and, and that, that balance. I think that we're all expected as women to sort of um, perfect or to sort of be great, you know, very graceful. And, and it's not, it's very messy. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, on those. So, I mean, Mary in particular, but Cecily as well. Uh, well, I said earlier that I was really interested in playing with certain fairy tale tropes mm-hmm. um, because I just wanted to have a good time while I was writing this novel. Of course. <laughs> It was in the middle of the pandemic. I honestly just made a list of my favorite tropes and sort of checked them off as I dealt with them. But the evil stepmother or the dead mother are two tropes that come up constantly in fairy tales. Um, And I really wanted to play with those. So Cecily is the stepmother and Maram is sort of a stepmother also in a a way, like she's Nicholas's closest maternal figure. And I don't think Cecily is evil at all. You know, I wanted to make her like a really loving, devoted mother to Esther, even though she's technically Esther's stepmother. So Cecily is sort of one part of that evil stepmother. And then Maram is the other part of the evil stepmother. And (laughs) a lot of the evil stepmothers are very ambitious people. They have clearly articulated goals and desires, even if their desire is just to be the fairest in all of the land, which is perhaps a shallow desire, but, you know, also appearance is really important when you're trying to be a woman in power, you know, (laughs) (laughs) not that you should like cut out the heart of your stepchild and eat it. Mm, Maybe not take it that far. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe not take it that far. Um, But so I was sort of just thinking about playing around with the stepmother trope and that idea of ambition and power and how it might manifest for a woman seeking that type of power, which often comes historically through marrying or allying yourself with a powerful person. In this case, Marm aligns herself with Richard. So I was kind of thinking of all that. And also, I just wanted to have a good time, like I said, while I was writing. And Marm was very fun for me to write. Um, So there's that little facet of it as well. No, it is true. Talking about like, you know, tropes and it's, it's so interesting. I think that especially, you know, today, and it's, we have this sort of like wealth of uh, fairy tale reimaginings and, you know, people kind of playing, you know, flipping um, these sort of traditional tropes, you know, talking about uh, the, the evil stepmother or why, why is the mother always have to die? <laughs> so many of why? these, it was really um, interesting to see sort of those, those, and mother figures, you know, and that their dynamic. And it really makes sense when you're saying how they are sort of like two sides of that evil 
stepmother trope. That's really interesting. And again, sorry for, for anyone who's, who's listening who hasn't read the book, you'll just have to read it and then you'll see how wonderfully interesting it is. All right. So getting to um, now my favorite little like quartet, um, we've got Joanna and Esther, and then we have Nicholas and Collins. And this sort of, I love that there is sort of you know, there's queer representation with Esther. There's this sort of feeling of found family when all of a sudden when the four of them sort of come together, it feels just very like it clicks. And I think it clicks for, for them too. And I feel like fantasy as a genre can, I think, be a safe space for the LGBTQIA community. And you can use it, you know, to highlight an issue, to promote empathy, or to sort of create on the other side, to create a utopia where readers can sort of mm-hmm. escape to um, a place where certain, you know, maybe norms or um, injustices simply don't exist. So what is your favorite thing about writing fantasy? Oh, wow. Um, what a great question. I was starting to formulate an answer about found family, which really <laughs> is one of my favorite things. I was telling somebody um, I just went to see the Dungeons and Dragons movie mm-hmm. with my students of I'm teaching a fantasy fiction class. And so we went to see the D&D movie and they said one of my favorite lines in all of fantasy, which is like, it's time to get a team together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm just such a sucker That's for that. True. It is. I love a team. And I think one of the amazing things about fantasy is that readers and I don't want to generalize too much because fantasy has a long, long history. Um, and we're sort of at an exciting new bend in the road for that history, I think. I would, yes. I would very much agree with that statement. Yeah. And it is historically, um, you know, sort of for white men. Mm-hmm. And I, again, my students and I were cackling over like the second edition of the D&D handbook. The first line is like, we have, we boast an enormous diversity of players. We have plumbers, electricians, we have people in cities, we have people in countries, and we even have some women. <laughs> we were just Yay. dying. <laughs> yeah. We're like, okay, so you have like diverse white men. That's yeah. that's funny. So, you know, there's like that whole long history, which I love some books in that lineage, but I do think that we're in this really exciting new time where people are coming to fantasy for the best part of fantasy, I think, mm-hmm. which is to experience a world that you don't experience day by day. And so people come to fantasy with slightly more open minds in terms of world building. You'll read a book as like an American, maybe you read a book set in New Delhi and there's a certain amount of world building that you need from the writer as a Western reader to understand what's going on. Or that writer maybe is writing for a non-Western audience or an audience that's more familiar with that location and they're not going to do as much world building. And I read these good read comments that are like, I didn't understand half of what was going on. The place names were confusing. Why are there all these wild foreign names? And you don't get that in fantasy. You can name somebody like the Zisanthria 99. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. So I think there is like more willingness and patience to be with something that feels different or difficult to immediately understand. And I don't think that's the case for my book (laughs) in particular. You know, I think that my book is like pretty Western in a lot of ways. It's set in the US and London, like what's more Western than that. And it's like not that the magic system is not super complicated, I don't think. Um, But, you know, I read books like The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Suri, which is set um, 
and maybe correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's like ancient India and I use ancient yes. so loosely <laughs> because I'm like, what even does that mean? And when? Yes. Like um, how, how far back do we have to go? Yeah. Categorizing so, things as like ancient. Yeah. It's a very loose, loose categorization, but you know, I read that book and part of the joy is discovering both a new magic and a new world and feeling the excitement of the unfamiliar. To me, it's unfamiliar. To other readers, it won't be as unfamiliar. Like some readers will come to my book. It's not going to be unfamiliar. Anybody who grew up in Vermont will be like, aha, yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the the outdoor outfitter with the moose out front. We we know that. Um, anyway, that's a really long answer. That's one of my favorite parts. I think of fantasy right now in particular. That's what gets yes. me jazzed. Though I'm not no. necessarily a practitioner of that no. kind of fantasy. <laughs> no, and it is, you know, and I, I say that a lot now. And I think because, you know, I am sort of loving I, whatever you want to call this sort of golden age, you know, rainbow age. I don't know what we want to call <laughs> What's the best way to say it? But of fantasy, because I think, you know, for me growing up, I there was, these books did not exist, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when you kind of came into fantasy, you, it was a lot of, you know, and I'm not gonna, you know, I read a lot of, a lot of Lord of the Rings, a lot of Lord of the Rings fan fiction. And that was, <laughs> that was a safe space for me, even though there's, there's pretty much no female characters, not a lot of representation, you know, but it was like, well, that was, that was sort of my entryway. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, you know, I still loved it. I still loved the idea of, again, sort of like suspending belief for a moment, mm -hmm. you know, and kind of entering, uh, you know, if you can suspend belief and enter this world and sort of live in it, why can't you open your mind to other things? You know, why can't you totally suspend, you know, just, just, it's like, hear me out, crazy idea, you know, maybe, maybe we should all think about human rights more, you know, or like, yeah. just like <laughs> I don't know, like, if we can think of, you know, if we can, if people, you know, out there who can learn, you know, learn Elvish, it's like, maybe you can learn Spanish, <laughs> like, I don't know, like, it's just, you know, like, crazy thoughts. For me, even though there wasn't this sort of broad um, community of fantasy writers and these amazing stories um, that we have now, there was still that part where it was like, if you can, if you can believe this, if you can mm -hmm. live here and live in this world and accept this, then there's, there's hope for us all in a way. <laughs> yeah. I think at its best fantasy can do that. It can yes. open magical doors yes. into other ways of thinking and other ways of seeing. Um, and I think it's doing that more and more lately. Yes. I know this is a standalone and I know most fantasies are sort of, you know, I, I, everyone loves the big um, series, but this is a standalone. However, I have to ask in a world where maybe there's a spinoff, mm -hmm. who gets the spinoff? And I want to say my bets are on Sir Kiwi, but I might be alone <laughs> here. Um, I'm thinking like picture books, really? Like, I mean, <laughs> like, oh I yeah. Like, I feel Sir like Kiwi and the cat. Yeah. Like, I think that we could do a lot there, but no, in all seriousness, <laughs> you know, the novel, again, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it wraps up and you, you feel good. And like, it, yeah, I feel like there, it could be open, like there are openings, but at the same time you feel satisfied, you feel fulfilled. But then I always love to ask that question, especially with standalones, like who gets, <laughs> in a crazy world, who gets the random spinoff? I will say my party line is I have no plans to write a sequel. I did want it to be really satisfying to read alone. However, <laughs> if there was to be another book in this world, um, I would probably 
focus more on like those smaller enclaves of book communities. So like the group in Boston uh, would probably get some attention. And obviously I think Marum would have to have a much more, yeah, she deserves her own full. Yes. No, I think she was so, I don't know. And maybe, maybe it's like a motherhood thing, but like, I, I was surprised at how much I connected again. And it's not that she's not an important character, but how much mm-hmm. I sort of had feelings, you know, <laughs> good. I'm glad feelings about her life and her trajectory as a woman, as an ambitious woman, you know, and sometimes I think it's, it's, and I'm sure you've had instances, many instances we all have when you're reading a book and, and it is those maybe non-essential, I don't know, I hate to say non-essential characters. I do feel like every character is essential in some way, mm-hmm. but how, what have they just strike you, you know, or they, they, they're the ones that like cut a nerve and maybe it is because they're not fully explored that we mm-hmm. have that sense of yearning. Um, afterwards to sort of know more about them. I don't know. (laughs) Or I wonder if it's that as a reader, you can just sense the many, many pages that are on my computer about Marum that did not make it into the final. You're just like, I know it's there. Mm, I could just, I could just like, it's just that, that's that sense. I could feel it out there. Yeah. There's words and sentences and paragraphs, um, you know, that I can get to consume. And that is so interesting. I was just having a conversation today about, you know, in, in fantasy. And actually this, this brings me to my next thing I want to talk to you about, um, which is your short fiction, how, you know, when you consume a lot of fantasy, I think reading like 500, 600, 700 page books, it's just sort of like, that's the norm. Totally. Um, like you just kind of, you know, you buckle up. And like, you're ready for it as a fan, you kind of, again, you're ready to escape, you're ready to sort of enter and suspend whatever beliefs. And while I love a good epic, um, I also really love short stories. I feel like that's, I'm, I'm at either end. I'm either like, I love to hear that. (laughs) Yes. Like I'm like, give me, and even like, I feel like this is like the same with, um, like film, um, like give me like a three hour extended edition I want. And then I want to know all the behind the scenes stuff. Like, give me that. Or give me like a 30, 30 minute like comedy episode. I don't, I don't want anything mm-hmm. <laughs> anything in between. I really love short stories. I really do. And it and I I I wish more people, you know, really understood sort of the what goes into making a short story and how that could even <laughs> oftentimes is sort of more difficult than being able to sort of mm-hmm. plot through, you know, 600 pages. Um, so you've written some very lovely uh short fiction, which you've been you've gotten awards for. What is the biggest challenge or what are the biggest challenges, but also like the highest rewards for each? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, and I think the answer is the same. Like the biggest <laughs> challenge is also the highest reward for me in short fiction, which is that in a short space, you know, a short story is maybe 5,000 words as opposed to my novel, at least is like 125,000 words. So yeah. that's many, many more words. <laughs> many more multiples of five um mm-hmm. so in like a five thousand word story every word is incredibly important because there's just not that many of them mm-hmm. so when i'm crafting a short story it's so deeply for me at the level of the language and i write sentence by sentence like beat by beat it feels really musical in a way and i'm paying so close attention to like the weight in everything, you know, like how the words are weighted and where the balance is. Um, And it feels like a fun jigsaw puzzle is how I've described it, like trying to find that perfect word to slot into the sentence so that it has the right cadence and the right meaning and is really satisfying. But it's also extremely challenging because you just have a much more compressed space. At least for me, it takes a long time 
to figure out like what it is I'm really writing about. Mm -hmm. So if you look at my drafts of short stories, it's like if a short story is 15 pages, that's the end result. The draft is like a hundred pages. Yeah. (laughs) It takes me a long time to get there. And then once I know really what the story is about, that's when I get to go back and do all that like minute fiddling. Yeah. Um, you know, to make it just feel tight and cohesive. Um, and you do not have that in a novel as much. Like I really had to unclench a little bit <laughs> in terms of like the sentence by sentence thing. Um, for me, it's still like the greatest pleasure is the language of a book. Mm-hmm. So I I still have to write sentence by sentence. I just like can't do it any other way. I've tried to do the messy first draft thing and it it just really doesn't work for me. I have to be a novel requires so much um, delusion. I've described it as like a delusion <laughs> bubble. Like I have to believe personally that every sentence I'm writing will stay in the book, even though I know absolutely without a doubt, it will probably get deleted. Yes, but that's good. Hope hope <laughs> is not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I have to be totally in it, in that delusion being like, nope, this is it. You know, yes, it's the 10th draft of this chapter, but this is the draft that's finally going to stick. And I thought that at the first draft too, you know, I have to believe it fully for every draft, but it's very, very challenging to be a sentence by sentence writer and also keep track of a big sprawling story. And, you know, this book, I come from a literary background. So like I wrote literary fiction up until about five years ago when I had a big sea change and turned my back on literary Uh, realism. (laughs) And, you know, so a lot of my early work was literary realism and my, most of my published stories are still literary realism, Um, but they're not big on plot and no one ever taught me how to do it. And so this book, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe, I wanted to make it like plotty. I was like, I'm going to write like a plotty book. (laughs) And I had no idea how to do it. So I just kept throwing wrenches in and then trying to write my way through them. And if it didn't work, I would just delete everything and throw in another wrench and then write my way through that. Um, but that like keeping all the wrenches in my brain was the biggest challenge and also one of the biggest pleasures. So that's a very long answer. Um, no, but I love it. Um, it's, you know, sometimes I think the challenge is the reward, you know, and so it's not totally, so so it's not uncommon to have, you know, to say like, oh, it was, it was that again, you know, just seeing all of your um the short fiction you've written and just thinking like and I know you've written you wrote a, a novel previous uh, prior to this one I did yep I wrote a literary realism novel which we, we don't um, have to talk about <laughs> since, we've, since we've obviously turned I'm our so glad it's, it will never be seen by any eyes other than me and my agent <laughs> but, oh, and that's fine and all the editors think, who rejected and it and everyone who put all that work into it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay we're allowed to sort of you know to, to grow and to explore and yeah what is next for you? Mm, great. Uh, are we yeah, going back to short, but me like short stories? Are we like, no, I, I, I you know, let's, let's get, let's go back to the, you know, let novels. We'll let that, uh, let that stay for a while. Yeah. I tried to go back to short fiction. Um, and I feel like something cracked in my brain and now <laughs> I'm only thinking in terms of novels. Mm-hmm. So I think it's gonna, it's gonna be another novel. I have tentatively started work on a new project that I am excited about. I am like really hold things close to my chest. I don't like to talk about them until they're out there, but um, I will share with you four keywords to the next project, which is bloom, broom, loon, moon. Oh, and I like the little rhyming. (laughs) I made them rhyme. (laughs) 
Uh, fabulous. I can draw <laughs> so many. <laughs> of course, my in mind instantly stuff. My fantasy brain, you know, yeah. instantly starts like, mm, yeah. moon. That's a good one. That's mm-hmm. got a lot of a lot of clues. Yeah. A lot of symbolism. I just took a weaving class. That's another little clue. Mm-hmm. I made two scarves. I'm very proud of them. Oh gosh! Now I think they came out well. <laughs> you should be. First of all, you should be proud. I'm assuming this was a new skill. This is like a, uh, a yes, like okay, as not, of one month ago when I yes. took this like three day weaving intensive. Yes, but I think and just like you, you know, like any new skill, whether it be writing, you know, learning how to write plot, <laughs> learning, learning, like diving into a novel. Um, I just think it's so, I love to hear people talk about, and I think, and I don't know, and I hate to say this, if it was like a pandemic thing, you know, where people kind of, you know, over a sudden start decided that learning new skills is something of, of, <laughs> of worth or that, you know, you are worthy of the time to learn totally. a new skill at any age. Like it's not basically, it's not something where like, okay, you go to high school and, you know, maybe you go to college and maybe you go to, you know, to mm-hmm. um, graduate school and then like learning stops. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I am a, just a perpetual student. I'll take, especially now that I've been a professor for so many years, I'm just like, I'll do anything to sit in a classroom <laughs> and learn something. I love it so much. And I'm, I'm sure. hugely into hobbies. I'm a big proponent of have a hobby that will never make you any money and just enjoy yourself and be kind of bad at it. Be a and, weaver. Yeah. Be a, be a weaver. <laughs> We have some chunky scarves that all your friends will be like, oh, yeah, that's really pretty. Uh huh. No, I don't want one. That's okay. Don't don't waste your time. That's when you're like, "Mm, yeah, I'll make one for you. (laughs) Just based on that. Oh, everybody's getting scarves from now until forever. I'm fully in it. They'll get better, I think. Uh, well, that's the thing with the skill. You have to work at it. That's, you know, I feel like I I said this, you know, it's it's funny when I'm talking to, to my little people's my children at this time and just trying to invoke that like Mm -hmm. things anything worth learning takes time absolutely so so being on the other end of seeing that you want to be on the other end of of you know the the teaching process wanting to be a a student i i always love to ask this question um to sort of kind of close things out um because one i'm always looking for great book recommendations but i think it's always nice to sort of talk about you know, when you're in your process, but then also just, you know, that, that love of other writers that I think mm-hmm. um, so many writers have and, and just in general, loving book recommendations from brilliant women. So what are you reading now? Or what was the last book that you read that you couldn't stop talking about? Oh, wow. These are really good questions. Um, I get panicky every time anybody asks me for a book recommendation. Oh, so no. I have post-its <laughs> on my wall that I'm looking at to remind me because you say, what are you reading? And I'm like, I don't think I've ever read a book in my whole life. I, know. I don't remember. <laughs> I've never read anything. Never. <laughs> Even though you um, probably have a stack of books. Like I have a giant probably... stack of books. Yeah. Um, I just got and I was really lucky enough to see him he came through Minneapolis and I uh, went to see him talk uh, Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajibrenya. Oh, I'm so excited. Lovely. It's right next to my bed. I'm like probably going to start reading it right after this conversation. Um, and then I'm about halfway through uh, The Spear Cuts Through Water by Simon Jimenez, whose first book, The Vanished Birds, is a book I could not stop talking about. Um, it's like a sci-fi space opera maybe sort of thing it's it's not you know 500 pages when you hear space opera maybe you think uh, th- yeah I think people do that <laughs> correlate the same but, yeah it's like a, a nice neat <laughs> good story it's the vanished birds is 
I was sobbing in public so intensely that like multiple people came over to see if I was okay. The first chapter, I tell everybody, read the first chapter. And if you're not astonished at the beauty of the writing and just in awe of the virtuosic performance of this writer, then like, there's no hope for you. <laughs> it's one and of the don't greatest me, first don't chapters ever ask me for a recommendation again. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. So I am, I'll read anything he writes. I'm like just sold on Simon Jimenez. And I also just finished and really enjoyed uh, The Adventures of Amina Al-Sarafi by S.A. Chakraborty. Yes. It was just a rollicking good time and about like a middle-aged mom pirate. And Mm -hmm. I was just complaining to somebody that there's just no middle-aged women in fantasy novels. Um, And in fact, it's like the older characters in fantasy novels are usually like grizzled old mercenary men. Yes. And this is sort of a grizzled old mercenary pirate woman um, on the Indian Ocean hunting treasure. And it's, yeah, it's extremely good. Yes, it is really. I can, I can, I, I will back that up as having read it as yeah. well. And I loved, and I think, yeah, what that's pretty much what sold me on it. And I read, I was like, so aging pirate mother queen, like not queen, but like in my head, I was like, so she's a queen, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, like, yeah, basically reclaiming her, her le- like her status, like reclaiming, you know, like yeah. flipping, you know, kind of rewriting her story. And I was like, yeah, I'm all, and and yeah. And then when you think about, like you said, from a fantasy perspective, Mm -hmm. put that in and you're just like, yeah, that doesn't exist. Like those stories don't exist. It's really a lot about like um, the balancing of wanting to protect your child, but also being like a badass lady who wants to go on big adventures, which I have no children myself, but a lot of my amazing friends do. And I see that struggle playing out in like you know, smaller ways. None of them are like, I'm going to get on that ship and hunt down this missing girl. But it is like, it's a constant struggle, you know, especially like artistic friends who are like, I want to go on this residency or to this conference. But here's this darling young person who <laughs> is going to cry exactly if I leave. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. The constant, it is a constant struggle. But speaking of adventures, Ink, blood, sister scribe. I have my like very worn um, art copy that I <laughs> I, I almost wanted to, to show it. you. I have like a an even one with that that didn't even have the cover. Um, that <gasps> was just like I had like an you got the blue version. one. Yes, and I yeah. almost wanted. I almost bought that one, and then I was like, no, we'll we'll show the nice <laughs> one. <laughs> it is an adventure, and I think that the emotions and again, you know, with the characters, and I love the different point of views, and it's just uh, really brilliant and just fun. And like something oh, where good. I feel like, you know, when you, when you are, you know, when you're reading a lot of 500, 600 page epic, this while it, while still like what, I think a little over 400 pages, not, you know, not nothing to, you know. Yeah. It's no doorstopper though. No, no, <laughs> but it's also not, you know, it's not like it's a, you know, short novella, but it was just lovely. And it was such a wonderful time. And I, um, just to escape a little bit and, and hang out with these characters and hang out with them and. And sort of uh, pull the parallels from this world into our own world, and again, make you makes you think, and um, just sort of help helps you open your mind and, and understanding. And it was really wonderful. And thank you so much for writing it. Oh, thank you so much for reading it and um, <laughs> having me. I feel like I yammered a lot about like colonialism, but I do think the book is very fun. <laughs> you know, I, I had a blast writing it. And yes. I, so I'm really happy to hear that you had a good time reading it. Um, yes. yes. And it was a, lovely to talk to you today. Yes. So thank you again. This has been wonderful. Ink Blood, Sister Scribe is out now. 
Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to go along with today's special Double Shot episode. I'm Mark, I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm coming to you from Leawood, Kansas. Fantastic. So I'm going to go ahead and kick things off. I wanted to recommend a book for The Shadow Cabinet by Dawson, and it made me think of a title that's come across pretty recently and has kind of spiked in popularity, and that's Unnatural Magic by C.M. Wagner. This is just a very nice escape. It's an escape to a lovely world. It's a debut author, and it just takes you somewhere on a nice trip and is just a fun read. Uh, We follow two characters who are vastly different, but the way that their separate stories start to kind of braid together is just really lovely. We follow Anna, who think Hermione Granger before she goes to school. She is studious. She is a bit of a know-it-all. She is practicing and studying her magical skills to try and get into this very prestigious academy. And all she really cares about is books and this school. Meanwhile, we have uh, Sira, who is a troll, who essentially is kind of striving for agency and dominance. Her culture is really trying to put her in a box of subservience. Uh, wanting to have her married off and be the sort of like kind, nice wife as troll wives should be. And she says, absolutely not. I'm explosive and a loud mouth and um, pretty messy. And I don't want to have anything to do with that. As you can imagine, things get witchy and explosive. And these two ladies essentially discover their own strengths inside themselves within each other and the people that they care about and their place in this world. I think the writing is very good for a first-time author. Uh, The story kind of stands out. There's just an endless sea of female-driven fantasy out there these days, and I think Unnatural Magic is one of those that you go, oh, hey, I notice you, and I would like to know more about what this author can pull off. So check out Unnatural Magic by C.M. Wagner. Jamie, what do you have for us? I am going to recommend something to read along with Inkblood Sister Scribe. I'm going to talk today about Rachel Kane. So I tend to be maybe a little more literature forward, I think, in my recommendations here, but in my off-the-clock reading, so to speak, there are plenty of um, good old fun adventure stories with romance and betrayal and fast action and horror and everything kind of all at once. Um, and these are, I think, like perfect paperbacks to read by the pool sort of books. And that's where I'd put this young adult fantasy series that I'm going to recommend today. And that's Rachel Kane was the author and it's called uh, The Great Library Series. And specifically book one is Ink and Bone. And uh, this one is also for the bookworms. (laughs) We love book, people love books about books, right? This is an alternative history uh, where the Great Library of Alexandria never burned and which on the surface, that sounds wonderful. Um, But in reality, it means that it's become this mega entity, this organization that controls who has access to all physical books. Um, In fact, most people in this world have never actually touched a real book um, because the Great Library controls all the access to the books and effectively all knowledge. And so, of course, a black market springs up around books. And this is where our protagonist comes in, Jess Brightwell is, um, of course, from a family of book smugglers. Right at the outset, we get to experience a little bit of action uh, with Jess and his family around the way that they procure these books. Um, His father, who is a real schemer, 
comes up with this big idea that he's going to send Jess to train as a librarian at the Great Library, um, which is not like a librarian that you and I know, but it's actually this really high stakes kind of thrilling job that's all about protecting and defending books everywhere. They find the books, they recover them in any way necessary, even giving up their own lives if needed, and they secure them in the library. And the plan between Jess and his father is that Jess is going to be able to smuggle out some really rare books and provide the family with this big windfall and possibly with some influence going forward. Um, but when Jess gets there, of course, he's going to meet a group of friends and enemies, just like any other school story. And he really gets sucked into the competitive atmosphere and the intense training to be a librarian. And he's doing all this while sort of dealing with the strict rules and constant surveillance that the library has on him that makes it impossible for him to spy for his family. And plus, of course, the library has secrets <laughs> uh, that it wants to protect at all costs. So I don't want to give away a lot of the plot because this one has plenty of surprises like magic and intrigue and betrayal. But as Jess and his friends progress in their librarian training, they begin to question the library, the organization's motives and its methods, especially around the suppression of knowledge. Um, it decides who gets access to information, um, who doesn't and why. And it leads Jess and his friends to become embroiled in this dangerous plot um, in which they're secretly sort of challenging the rules and the censorship and the control that the library has. And they decide they want to make the world better and fairer for everyone and give knowledge to everyone. Um, and so Jess has to manage all of that subterfuge while he's simultaneously spying for his father. So he's kind of balancing on this knife's edge, which really adds to the tension of the book. Um, Rachel Kane uh, was a great author. She was a pro who wrote prolifically across many genres. And uh, this is a quick, fun read, but it also has darkness and magic and books and all the things that we like in a fun paperback. Um, I heard somebody describe it as a little Harry Potter and a little bit Fahrenheit 451. Um, I think there's also a little bit of Lev Grossman's The Magician series in there. And so I think it would be uh, a great fit for somebody who read Ink Blood Sister Scribe and wants more magical book intrigue in their life. I assume everybody wants that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that I could always use a book about a book and give me a fun, summery, magical snack. You know, I think you and I are similar in that we read a lot of literary fiction, we read a lot of meals. But we also enjoy a snack. And <laughs> I think there is uh, equal place for both. So, uh, yeah, fantastic pick. But that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.